Today we are wrapping up our three-part wonder and awe series on the importance of our life group initiative, and we're going to talk about the third and final value for life groups, the value of community. Now the word community is tossed around quite a bit in church culture, and I challenge you to find a church website anywhere that does not have the word community in it. Uh, I was talking with, with Kristen Evans with Spiritual Leadership Week. Kristen is the uh, coach that our pastors our directors and our, our council leaders have been working with really for a, a couple years now. And I mentioned to Kristen that I'd be preaching on the importance of community and life groups. And she responded regarding the word community, calling it a sacred ordinary. A sacred ordinary. You're probably thinking, what is that? So was I. Uh, it's ordinary in that the sense that all the necessary logistical things that we do to create community don't often feel sacred. Um, you know, the, but the idea of community is sacred. It was God's original intention. We, we've spent the entire summer looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And it was and it is God's desire that it be the ordinary experience for his children. God desired the sacred intimacy that existed within the Trinity to also exist in creation. To exist in the garden. God wanted it in the garden. And, of course, it unraveled, as we saw. And God made, continually made attempts to, to restore it, but time and time again it became flawed. Because, as Pastor Kristen reminded us, we humans are flawed. And as we concluded each week in that Genesis series, the community that God desires um, is only possible through Jesus and his work that can reconcile us into a right relationship into his kingdom. Only Jesus could reconcile us to God, and only Jesus can reconcile us to each other so that this sacred ordinary could exist. So, you know, when you think about it, many of the things that we do in community in the church, you can do those things anywhere. But what makes them sacred is that they are the ordinary expression of what God has always wanted, which is this right relationship in his kingdom, both vertically and horizontally. So as I studied and I prayed about uh, the text to use this morning, I landed on Luke 24, 13 through 35, which is often called the road to Emmaus or, or the walk to Emmaus. And the, the events that happened on the road, on that road to Emmaus, had happened weeks prior to what the church experienced in Acts 2, the text we also had read this morning. And you, you've been hearing that text each week in this series. And there are several themes uh, in, in the experience of those two disciples who unknowingly encountered Jesus on the road that day, that, I, that really connect to my experiences with the ups and downs uh, of, and frankly, the di relational disappointment that can often occur within smaller groups and communities within the kingdom of God. Now, right now, you're probably thinking, wow, Kurt, that's not very encouraging. <laughs> Hang in there. It's real. And I think we have something to learn from this story this morning. I'm going to lay my cards on the table right now up front and say I want to give an abundance of credit to Ruth Haley Barton in her book, Life Together in Christ. Our life group leadership team has already engaged with this book somewhat. I think they're going to probably continue to do so. So much of the connecting of the experiences of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus and our experiences in small groups and in life groups in that setting was done by Ruth Haley Barton in this book. So I also want to thank Pastor Stacy for letting me preach this sermon on community. So let's start with what is community? Definition. Webster, of course, has several 
definitions, but the definition that I think most applies to where we are going uh, with life groups is as follows. A unified body of individuals such as a people with a common interest or even a common character. Common interest or even a common character. So as members, as attenders of ECC, we're here because we seek to become a community of people who know God, who follow Jesus, and who pursue God's purposes in the world. And we seek to live out the good news of Christ through our touchstones of welcome, transformation, and presence. This is our mission statement, and this is the vision statement that define our common interest and the common character that we seek to have, that we desire. So, now in no way do I consider myself an expert on community, or even life groups for that matter, but I do have some experiences that are unique, and I counted... As an adult, uh, both Joe and I have been a part of eight small groups in our married life, two at other churches, and six here at ECC, including the group that I currently lead. I've been leading my current life group, if you will, for the past 10 years, since 2012. But I also have the unique experience of having traveled for, for three plus years with a, with a uh, community of young men and women in a music ministry called Eternity. This was a band out of Austin, Texas. I know many of you know this, those three plus years of mission and ministry. They've given me a lot of sermon fodder, all right? And I've shared multiple stories on multiple occasions from this pulpit. These are my, I guess, my tales from the road, if you will. Most of what I usually share has to do with my own transformation or um, things that happened in missions, stories of evangelism, things that God did. But frankly, this entire experience was also really a, a, a giant laboratory for community. So in my time there, there were anywhere between 11 to 16 ethnically diverse people, mostly between the ages of 20 and 30, living together in a customized tour bus. So when we were not on tour in that bus, we were in our apartments in Austin, Texas, living together. Most of the time, we traveled the entire country. Now, a short day for us on the road, a short day would be 10 to 12 hours spent together. Most of the days we were together generally from 7 a.m. in the morning till about 10 at night, let alone if we traveled overnight somewhere, then we even spent more time together. So mostly we were out there doing 250 concerts a year, making music together. We were practicing a lot, practicing all the time, eating together all the time, working side by side every day. Setting up, tearing down, endless miles on the road, countless spiritual conversations, Bible study, transformation, growth, seeing people come to Christ, seeing lives transformed. It was great. Now, I mentioned these were musicians, right? So, you know, 12 to 16 artisans on a bus makes for a pretty much a drama-free environment, wouldn't you think? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Now, there were disagreements, there were arguments, there was pettiness, there was competitiveness, there was jealousy. There was tremendous diversity of church background and, and theological opinion. I got to say, we, we really overcame that pretty well, I think, for the sake of mission. But there was physical discomfort and stress, uh, bus breakdowns, air conditioning brake failures in places like New Mexico and Louisiana, or heat going out in a bus up north, which I think is what's going on in that picture. Um, you know, there's seemingly endless things that broke, be it the bus 
or audio equipment or even my bass being blown off the stand and off the stage by a gust of wind in, in, North, in western Kansas. Um, I could go on and I have, I have endless stories of things that happened. But the point was, it was life. It was community. It was, in essence, my first life group, if you will. And it was full of joy and sadness, growth and disappointment, transformation and, and backsliding, unity and disunity, deep relationships and conflict, victory and failure, missional advancement and missed opportunities. It was a three-year life group experience in, in a life group Petri dish called the bus. And I'm still alive to talk about it, okay? So that's why I wanted to, that's why I wanted to preach on the topic of community. I guess to quote, quote the guy from the farmer's insurance commercial that says, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. I think for me, you probably tweak that to say, I've seen a lot of mistakes and I've made a lot of mistakes, all right? So let's dive into our text this morning. I think when we look at the, the experience of these two disciples of Jesus, Cleopas and the unnamed disciple, we're going to see they point to a connection with our need for community that can be experienced in life groups. is what life groups can offer. So part of what attracted me to this text was the overarching context of disappointment and disillusionment. That, that really is the backdrop of this story. I mean, the one that they had hoped would redeem Israel was killed right before their eyes. Verse 13 states, Now on that same day, two of them were walking to a village called Emmaus, and about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and as they discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside them. So, so what's good here is that in the wake of their disappointment, these disciples were talking. They were processing. They had each other, which really created a place for them to process the disappointment of the day. So while these experiences, they were fresh and raw and unresolved, they chose to walk and to talk with each other about everything that had happened. Barton says, you know, they weren't praying in any formal way. They weren't having a Bible study. They weren't worshiping in the synagogue. They weren't having a formal quiet time. They were discussing the stuff of their lives, everything that had happened. And that, that, that was, were having such an impact on them spiritually in every other way that something about the nature and the quality of their conversation opened up a space for Jesus to draw near. And I think this is one of the best things that a life group has to offer. It's a place in community to talk about the disappointment, about everything that had happened. The stuff of life, as she calls it. It's a place where Jesus can draw near. So Jesus approaches them, but they don't recognize him. Verse 17 states, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their face downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know about the things that happened there these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and the people, the chief priests and our rulers, and, and they go on. They tell the story. They're, they're disillusioned. They're disappointed. They have what Bonhoeffer calls a wish dream for what Jesus would do, and that wish dream was shattered. So they tell their story. It's a story Jesus already knows, but he lets them talk. 
And, and Barton says, Jesus models for us here another important element of transforming community is the ability simply to listen and be with what is without having to fix it. Give advice or, or problem solve. So right now, all of you went through Stephen ministry training or shaking your heads going, yep, heard that before. But it's true. I mean, it's true for caregiving and it's true for life groups. Jesus seemed to know what these two disoriented disciples needed and he patiently lets them tell him what he already knows and listening listening i think is one of the most important things we do in community dietrich bonhoeffer states in his book life together he said he says that the first service that one owes to others in the fellowship consists of listening to them just as god's love begins with listening to his word. So the beginning of love for our brothers and sisters is learning to listen to them. And it's God's love for us that he not only gives us his word, but he also lends us his ear. Bonhoeffer adds, Christians, especially ministers, he had to get that in there, but so often think they must always contribute something when they're in the company of others. That this is the one true service that they have to render. And they forget that listening can be of greater service than speaking. There are so many more things that Bonhoeffer says about listening. I mean, I would love to probe that more, but I need to move on here. But before I do, look at these two quotes again, and then consider the context for Bonhoeffer and his observations. The context was Christians suffering together in a German concentration camp. Barton says that Jesus on the Emmaus Road invites us to consider the practice of what she calls Christian listening. She says, even though Jesus certainly has his perspective on the situation, which he shares fruitfully later on, his initial invitation to them was the complete freedom to tell it like it was for them. So Christ indeed does have answers. He has the response they need. And when he's finished, the text says their hearts will burn within them. So think about the extremes for a minute from the beginning to the end of this narrative. And when Jesus asks them what they're talking about in verse 17... The text says they stood still with their face downcast. By the time he's finished with them and disappears right before their eyes, their hearts are burning within them, and it compels them to return to the 11 disciples and tell their story. So Jesus responds, How foolish are you, you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So there's a bit of a rebuke here, yes. But, but in this post-resurrection reality, Jesus really needs them to get it. You know, Jesus has been predicting his death all along to the 11 disciples. And I believe that the other disciples who would have been with him would have heard this as well. But now he really needs them to understand and reconcile this to their context. To reconcile what scripture says. So it's critical for the mission going forward, that these two and the others understand it. So while Jesus has been patient and he's modeled Christ-like listening, it's now time for truth, and truth comes in Scripture. And Jesus tells them that there's something to the Old Testament Scriptures that these disciples and many others have missed, and that they lead, they point to Jesus. They point to his coming, his life, his death, his suffering, and his resurrection. So Jesus tries to open their hearts and, and minds to the reality by explaining to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. 
Now, this ought to sound really familiar to us. And Pastor Stacy had preached on this very passage as the backdrop for our walk through the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters. And our application every week in that series was how the Old Testament, those specific Old Testament scriptures and all scriptures point to the person and the work of Jesus. And scripture is centric to the life group community. I'm going to have a little bit more to say about that in a minute. Let's move on. Verse 28 states, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it, and he began to give it to them. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Okay, so this is, there's this little tangential thing um, in verse 28 that kind of fascinates me. You know, they get to the village, and Jesus was going to just continue on. I mean, where was he going? We're, we're going to see in a minute that, you know, the post-resurrection Jesus really doesn't need to walk anywhere. I mean, the entire purpose of this walk was to be with these two and open, my, open their eyes. Now my, my imagination was that he wanted them to show the curiosity to invite him into the home where they were staying in that village. And, and these two urge him, they do invite him, they urge him strongly to stay with them, and he does. And ultimately, this leads to him breaking bread, giving thanks, and serving them. And it's like, wait a minute, we've seen this before. Their eyes are open, but Jesus is done. And he's gone. Let's talk about this concept of inviting people into our home. So, you know, when you invite your life group into your home, you know who comes with them, right? You're inviting Jesus into your home. And this is a vulnerable thing. In our, in our culture today, you just, people just don't do this anymore. You see it less and less. I mean, you invite someone into your home, they see your stuff. They see your pictures, they see your interests, they see your passions, they see your life. You're opening yourself up for them to know you better. I mean, you come into my house, first thing you're going to see are my dogs. You're going to see way too many bass guitars. All right. Barton says this whole experience of welcoming, pe welcoming people into our homes can also foster an important self-awareness, the kind that leads to further transformation. And we do know, we'll do well to notice how we feel about opening our homes to others. Right now, how does that make you feel? Do you anticipate it with joy? Or does that cause you anxiety? Are we comfortable letting others see our lives pretty much as they are? Or are there things that we want to hide that we'd rather not let people see? You know, at the start of this walk, the two disciples welcomed Jesus into their private conversation. Later, they welcomed him into the home they're staying at the village. And this, this act of vulnerability on their part was catalytic. Verse 32 states, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and he opened the scriptures to us? And they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, so this is the 11 saying, it is true that the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So, what was Jesus' purpose in this, this passage, this narrative? I think many things, actually, but the thing that strikes me the most 
in this entire Emmaus walk, the conversation, the subsequent meal in the house, and the effect that it had on these two was essentially he turned these two around and sent them back to where they needed to be, back to the 11. Now, we don't know for sure if Cleopas and the unnamed disciple were part of the community that exists in Acts 2, the text that we've been looking at, but I'd like to think they were. So I, I began by talking about my experience with community being part of a small group, small group in churches and, and traveling with this quote-unquote life group on the road doing ministry. And it enabled me to reflect a bit about how these experiences have brought about growth and transformation in me. Now particularly as it pertains to how I lead and how I participate in my life group. Now I'm going to guess that some of you might not completely... Um, like the way I now lead my life group. And the reason I say that is I know that the younger version of myself would not like some of the things I do now. So I wrote down some of the differences between young Kurt, if you will, and what I'm going to call old Kurt or older Kurt, as it pertains to life and community. So here's a picture uh, just for perspective of young Kurt and Joe. Um, I, by the way, I... I just want to draw a tip. My wife is older than me. I know that picture on the left would not prove so. Here's another picture. Um, I really don't think you can take me seriously if I leave that one up, so we're going to take that down. Oh, please forgive me. I'm going to talk about myself here in the third person just for the sake of this illustration. Okay. Let's talk about how groups pray. Young Kurt wanted a concise time of collecting prayer requests and in prayer in order that we can get on to the time of study. I mean, come on, if we're meeting for two hours, we need to agree upon how much time we're going to spend praying and how much time we're going to spend studying. Okay, old Kurt embraces the process of communal sharing, recognizing that in the process of sharing and listening, Christ is drawing near. And prayer has already started in the process. All right, young Kurt wanted information. The greatest value was learning something new from the text or the topic. Older Kurt embraces the slow work of God through formation. Not information, formation. He recognizes that formation probably happens more in the reflection that takes place by the individuals in the hours, in the days after the group meets. Young Kurt thought that random questions were, that were not centric to the point of the text and study were distracting tangents and the leader needed to reel that stuff in. Old Kurt embraces that everybody's question is important and it's worth the time to spend on it. Young Kurt hated disagreement and tension around the Bible and spiritual things and really made him uncomfortable. He did everything he could to push that stuff down, try to force a reconciliation to it or laugh it away. Okay, old Kurt still isn't necessarily a fan of it, but I see that tension is necessary for people to grow. I mean, I look back on my life and I recognize that tension has had a great value in my own growth. Young Kurt was annoyed by conversations that drifted into tangents that didn't seem relevant to the topic. And he felt like the leaders needed to manage that stuff. That was the leader's job. Old Kurt sees tangents are often a gift. They're often a gift. Young Kurt was always continually eva internally evaluating and asking the question, what did we really accomplish tonight? 
Olkert recognizes the value of community in that gathering together is good in and of itself. Let me say that again. Gathering together is always good in and of itself. Young Kurt thought curriculum and objectives were the key. Old Kurt thinks relationships are the key. You know, if we don't meet because of people's schedules, and the only thing that happens in that period of time is texting and communication between the group in that week, it's still a win. It's still a win. Both Young Kurt and Old Kurt both respect people's time. 8 p.m. is 8 p.m. However, Old Kurt's kind of learned to value the touchstone of hospitality and often says, you know, I've kept you right up to the hour. I'm going to pray and wrap this up, but you know, you're always welcome to stay longer if you want. So I hope this gives you a little bit of an insight, a glimpse into my heart for life groups and my, my value for community. And I'm pretty sure there are times that the relaxed pro approach of old Kurt might frustrate some people. It certainly would have frustrated young Kurt. He would have went home and complained to Joe about that guy wasting time. But think about your, your small group, your life group experiences and expectations. Which of those statements do you resonate with? Which ones do you disagree with? I mean, you, perhaps you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know, I, honestly, I kind of resonate more with the young Kurt thinking. Perhaps your, your reaction is, yeah, come on, man. Time is important. We're busy people. And I want some meat on that bone when we meet. Well, if that's you, I like you. I really do. You know, I'm, I'm still kind of with you. I want people to grow. I want to grow. I agree with the writer of Hebrews that the, the word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And as we like to say in the covenant, the, God's word is the perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. And it's the dynamic, transforming power of God's word working with his spirit. That's what directs the church, and he does that through the life of each Christian. I think all those things are true, and they're of critical importance. But I've come to embrace the idea that really comes from the Ignatian idea of trusting in the slow work of God in my life and in the lives of others. And the slow work of God often happens in community. It happens on God's time, and it happens in God's way. I mean, the Word and the Spirit are always at work, but, he, but God also uses all that stuff that annoyed young Kurt. He uses tangents. He uses oversharing and prayer requests. He uses interruptions. He uses the silliness and fun and conversations that have nothing to do with a lesson plan. He even uses conflict. He uses those things to open up the scriptures to us, just like he did those two disciples on the road that day. So I have a question for you to ponder, and I put it in the Bible App Live event this week for, for you to reference, or you, or you can write it down. So if you've been a part of any smaller group of believers in the past, whether it's been a small group, a life group, a ministry team, whatever, just take a minute to reflect on what was your best small group experience. And then I want you to reflect on what was your worst small group experience. Write, write both of them down. Then consider, how did they change you? How did they form you? Particularly as you reflect on your worst experience. Was the damage irreparable? Or can you see how God might have used it over time to change something about you, to form you? So 
I'm going to close this morning with what the uh, marketing experts in the room might call the worst promotional vernacular ever. All right? The worst promotional vernacular ever. Here it is. We want you to sign up for life groups. We're asking you to sign up for disappointment, disillusionment, perhaps even a little conflict. We're asking you to spend time with people who don't see the world quite like you do. Why? Because you need it. You know, we want what we most fear. And we all need something that's simply hiding behind the veil of social media. That can't give us. That's not the community that can give that to us. And if you're in a life group, more than likely the nights that you don't want to go to your life group or maybe the nights you most need to go, those might just be the nights that your heart will burn within you because of how Jesus shows up. Would you pray with me? So God, uh, as we as a church re-engage in life groups, and as, as some of us, God, engage really for the first time, Lord, I pray for us as a people. God, I pray that we would trust in you and, and what often seems like your slow work in our lives. For God, we are naturally impatient people, <laughs> but help us to trust that you use what often seems like the instability that happens when there are group dynamics. God, you use that as a transformative tool in our lives and in the lives of others. So God, I pray for us. I pray for patience. God, I pray for commitment to show up. I pray for commitment to stay. And most of all, God, I pray for transformation so that we can know you better, that we can follow you closer in obedience, and that we can pursue your purposes in the world you have called us to. Amen.